Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Bit of follow-up from episode 45 when I went to the Santa Fe Symposium in Albuquerque, New Mexico earlier this year. Uh, we were discussing some of the papers that were uh, being presented at the symposium, and uh, they've finally put the PDFs of those papers up on the website. Uh, so if you go to santafesymposium.org, uh, there's a link to papers, the past papers, and they now have the 2019 papers up there as well. And so if any of the topics we discussed from that are of interest to you, uh, you should go check those out. This is the, the first year in a few where you are not amongst the featured papers. Yeah, I didn't have a paper in this year's symposium, and I may not have one in next year's symposium either. I, I think I may need to take next year off also. I've got a few things on my plate that are uh, sort of pressing and that I need to finish, uh, specifically this watch. I need to get it, uh, I really do need to get it finished and working. And I don't think I'm going to be able to finish this watch and get it out for sale this year and also be able to do the research that I need to for the next paper that I want to give and be able to write the paper and do all that sort of by the end of the year. Uh, one of the things I started to realize is that we are already more than halfway through this year and uh, I have had a great time at all the conferences that I've been going to, but I have not been getting nearly enough done on uh, my projects here in the studio. So I need to focus on that a little bit. So I think I may be taking next year off from speaking as well. Well, you certainly haven't been slacking. You've made up for the, the lack of a paper and presentation at the Santa Fe Symposium this year with a paper and presentation for the Goldsmiths Conference, which recently happened in London. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a fortunate thing. The, uh, the Goldsmiths Company, who, again, we've spoken about the Goldsmiths Company a couple of times now on the show, specifically last year when uh, Rich Lowen and I had an opportunity to take a tour of the assaying office at the Goldsmiths Company in London. And the director of the assaying office, uh, Dr. Robert Organ, he has been a past speaker at the Santa Fe Symposium as well. In fact, that's how I met him uh, three years ago when I was a first-time speaker. He was giving a fascinating talk about how the assaying office is uh, involved in helping to identify fakes and forgeries in the uh, antique silver world. So he and I hit it off, and um, that's how I ended up getting an invite to visit the assaying office. And uh, he decided that uh, as as part of his mandate there, he wanted to try and bring a Santa Fe Symposium-style uh, congress to the Goldsmiths Hall. And so using Eddie Bell's template for the Santa Fe Symposium and uh, also um, enlisting Eddie's help in, in getting some, some speakers and, and Eddie himself over, uh, they decided to put on a, uh, a Congress this year. And I was fortunate to be one of the people they invited along. And this, uh, this year's paper was sort of an amalgamation of the two previous papers that I've given on Niello making. Uh, but this one was a little bit more refined than the previous two. And, uh, now that this was sort of my third crack at the at the topic, I was able to uh, sort of write a more cohesive and, and more interesting paper. So uh, not a lot of new information 
if uh, you've looked at my past two papers, but it is slightly more concise and uh, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more refined than the previous two were. So how do you feel about your presentation now that it's over? Yeah, it was good. I, I had a great time presenting. Um, there was, it was a really great environment to, to talk in. The, the hall that we're speaking in is absolutely fabulous. If, if you've ever watched the, the uh, Netflix show, The Crown, there are scenes that take place in Buckingham Palace in the show. Well, they're, they're not actually filmed in Buckingham Palace. Uh, the, the palace won't give them permission to do that. Uh, but conveniently, the Goldsmiths Hall was uh, designed by the same architect and was made in the same time period. And so a lot of those scenes in Buckingham were actually shot at the Goldsmiths Hall. And uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous hall. So the the location, the venue for this Congress was incredible. Uh, the, um, you know, so as a place to speak, it was, uh, you, you just couldn't ask for a better, better location to, uh, to be a speaker at something like this. Yeah, the few pictures you sent me certainly looked magical, almost ethereal. As you were uh, essentially living amongst royalty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When uh, and if I think there's a photo of me up on the Goldsmiths site uh, that will will link to the uh, their news article about the Goldsmiths Congress, and uh, there's a photo of me speaking up there, and you can see all of the the beautiful gold and silver plate that's um, that's on display at the front of the room behind me. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. The the decor there is amazing. You know, there's medieval tapestries on the walls and in the room where you're having uh your your tea break in the morning and afternoon and uh it's just a a remarkable location are there any particular standouts for you from the other speakers yeah there were a couple there fortunately i had already heard a number of the talks that were there there were a number of of uh santa fe symposium alumni there giving talks of various um various talks that they have given over the years. Uh, so I had heard a number of them, which was good in some ways. I was focused on trying to get my paper and my presentation sort of ready in my mind. So I maybe wasn't focusing as much on some of the papers as I should have been. But there were a few that were new to me this year, and uh, they were quite wonderful. Um, one of them was from Grant McDonald. He was one of the keynote speakers there. Uh, Grant is a silversmith in London, who has been doing exceptionally high-end work for many, many years. Uh, this, I think last year was his 50th year as a goldsmith slash silversmith. And uh, he was giving an overview of his career as part of his uh, keynote. And uh, that was a remarkable thing. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute because I, I had a chance to visit his studios on uh, the day following the Congress. And uh, some of the work that they're doing is just uh, just unbelievable. So Grant's talk was was a lot of fun, and it was interesting to see. And going into the Congress, you were quite keen on some of the platinum papers that were going to be presented. Did they live up to your expectations? Yeah, there was some good information coming out of the platinum uh, papers, uh, yeah, particularly Teresa Frey from TechForum. Uh, she's given a number of talks at the Santa Fe Symposium, and uh, this one was uh, was quite good. Uh, it was talking a little bit about how platinum, different platinum alloys solidify while you're casting them, some of the challenges that you end up with when you're casting them. Uh, so there was some some good information there. I don't know that I'm ever going to be casting my own platinum pieces, but this gives me a better understanding of what's going on 
which alloys I should be looking at and also have a better understanding of of how to talk to my casters when I do uh, get them to, to actually cast platinum pieces for me. So if you were theoretically to make a pen cast from platinum or a, a watch case blank cast from platinum, what alloy do you think you'd settle on? Yeah, based on some of the information that I've been seeing, and again, I, I need to do some more digging into this, but it looks like there's a platinum cobalt alloy that is worthwhile looking at. I know that it's not particularly common in North America, but the Europeans are using it quite a bit, and it is an excellent alloy. It solves a number of the problems that happen with the platinum iridium and platinum ruthenium alloys that we tend to use here in North America, uh, particularly from a casting standpoint. Uh, certainly, if you're fabricating it, it's a it's a different story, and you can use some different alloys for that uh, because you're dealing with different properties there. But from a casting point of view, the platinum cobalt ones seem to be uh, very promising. So I have to look a little bit more into those and uh, see if I can find casters here in North America who are willing to work with it because I know that that can be a bit of a limitation as well. Now, apart from presenting in a, a very royal and majestic atmosphere. It also looks like you were whining and dining amongst uh, some seriously effluent folks. I mean, we're talking solid gold jugs. What's what's it like to, to drink wine from a solid gold decanter? One of the other speakers, Martin, whose last name I'm not even going to try and pronounce because there's no good way for me to pronounce it that's going to sound... Uh sound appropriate. Uh, Martin is a remarkable goldsmith and um, he, he's a quite the character. And if you, if you chat with him, he's very, very humble. You, you wouldn't realize that he's probably the best goldsmith in the country for raising objects from flat sheet. He is, uh, he's incredibly gifted when it comes to doing raised forms. And one of the projects that he worked on for a client of his, a, a longstanding client of his, was to make a claret jug. So it's a jugs in a very specific form that's designed for uh, decanting and serving claret wine. Uh, he made this for a client of his, and it's 99% pure gold. This is a jug that he made, I guess, about a decade ago for this client. And uh, he was able to borrow the jug from the client for the Congress so that he could have it with him. I'd love to see the pipes on this client because it, it would have to be a workout <laughs> to to pour anything from this jug. You know, I was nervous pouring pouring from this thing. It is substantial. Um, this thing is well. We'll have a photo of me with it in the uh, in the show notes. Um, but this thing weighs two point four kilograms of solid gold. And that's before you add the wine in. So, you know, so you're adding another, let's say liter of wine in there. So you're looking at three and a half kilos of, uh, of weight in this thing. And you're trying to pour and not spill this red wine everywhere on the table and not drop this million pound, you know, jug that, uh, that you're, you're, uh, pouring wine from. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> It was a remarkable thing. I, I was certainly not expecting something like that to show up when I was at the uh, when I you know when we got dressed for dinner that night. I was blown away when you sent me the photo. It truly is a remarkable piece and a huge testament to 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 Martin's skill. Being able to raise something like that out of flat sheet is is mind boggling. 
Yeah, honestly, raising raising an uh, an object like this out of flat sheet of any metal is absolutely remarkable. It, it really is a testament to Martin's skill as a goldsmith to be able to to make something like this. It is a, a remarkable feat of our artistry to be able to and technical skill to be able to do something like this, and then on top of that, be able to do that out of ninety nine percent gold uh, is just amazing because 99% gold, pure gold should not be able to hold that form and should not be usable as a piece. And, uh, it, it completely is. It was, um, it was an incredible thing. Yeah. Uh, just absolutely remarkable piece of work. So did Martin delve into any insights into the, the process behind making this particular piece or was this brought in more as a, a showpiece to just pass around the, the auditorium? Well, the, so this piece was, was there as a prop, funny enough, for the, the paper that he was giving. And the paper wasn't so much about the process of raising a, uh, a jug like this. Uh, I think there's, there's enough information out there when it comes to raising that, that, that wasn't, I mean, as, as impressive as it is, that wasn't the interesting thing about this jug. The, the particular bit that was interesting about it was the, uh, gold alloy that was used in this case, uh, because it is 99% pure gold. And the addition of, if I remember correctly from the paper, and I, unfortunately I don't have the paper in front of me because it, it hasn't been published yet. But uh, if I remember correctly, I believe it's 1% titanium that was added to the gold that gave it enough strength to be able to keep its form and not be something that would be completely destroyed just through general wear and tear. Uh, so the the paper itself was really focused on the technical aspects of the alloy and uh, how it's used as a, uh, you know, in this case, as an alloy that could actually hold up to, to what was being done to it. Well, that small insight in itself uh, sheds a lot of light in, into how he, he was able to pull this off. Because as you say, to be able to do this out of just about any other alloy of 99% pure gold would be nigh on impossible to, to do. Well, you you really couldn't. The pure gold is, is much too soft to be able to do this. Even 18 karat gold would be a stretch. A stretch. Haha. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. Yeah, it would be it would be a bit of a stretch even with 18 karat gold. You'd have to be careful with it. And to be fair, you have to be careful with this too. You you know, this isn't the sort of thing that you uh you throw into the dishwasher at the end of the night. It is remarkably sturdy for something that is pure gold and is hallmarked as 999 gold. It's uh it's impressive when uh you know when you look at this thing. Yeah. It's uh, an amazing piece of work and uh just absolutely gorgeous. And I'd love to say that that was the most remarkable thing that I saw that week, you know, in London. But two other things that that I was very fortunate to be able to do while I was there, uh, we did get to see the Crown Jewels. We we got a private tour of the Crown Jewels uh, on the Sunday evening, uh, which was quite interesting. Sadly, not allowed to take any photos or video while I was in there. So uh, you'll just have to take my word that I was there and that we saw them. And you'll just have to, to paint us a picture. So what was it like? What was it like? Did you get to handle the crown jewels? The closest uh, yeah, I've gotten to them not has been happen. across from like a, 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 there's a literal moat between me and the crown jewels, and then there was this glass and all manner of security apparatus. Well, they've they've removed the moat now, uh, but they do have a moving sidewalk 
that they stick you on. And so you, if you're a, a member of the, the unwashed masses and you go to the, uh, to see it, then, uh, they'll stick you on the moving sidewalk and they sort of hurry you along as you get to pass by the, um, some of the more impressive pieces in the crown jewels. Now we weren't obviously allowed to, um, to touch them or see them up close and, you know, they were still being left in their display case. Uh, but they did turn the moving sidewalk off for us so that we could at least, uh, stand there and, uh, and, uh, gawk at, uh, at our leisure as we were going by. So did anything in particular stand out about them for you? Apart from the sheer size of these rocks? Oh, they're unbelievably gaudy, but they're impressive, impressive pieces of work from a technical point of view. Uh, they, they truly are. Uh, and, and the, you know, when you, when most people talk about the crown jewels, they think about the sort of the, the crown of state and the, the orb and things like that. The, the stuff that's actually used in the coronation ceremony. Uh, but there are, you know, 125 pieces or whatever that's that are part of the collection, and so it, it isn't just a you know a crown and and uh, and an orb and a spoon and things like that. There's there's a lot more there uh, that's uh, that's involved. And uh, interestingly, they are still a working collection. It, it's not something that just sits there on display waiting for, uh, you know, for a monarch to die and then be coronated. Uh, so, for instance, when we were there. Uh, the latest uh, royal baby was being christened, and uh, so they had actually taken out a number of the pieces that were uh, that had been used for christening various members of the royal family, and so those were no longer on display while we were there. Please tell me one of the missing pieces was a silver spoon. Uh, I'm not sure that it was silver. I suspect it might have been gold, but anyways. <laughs> Born was... with a gold spoon in your mouth. <laughs> nice. Yeah, pretty close. But uh, yeah, so it, that is one of the interesting aspects of the collection is that it is still a functional um, collection. So for instance, they still have old maces of parliament in there. So the mace is uh, the representation of the monarch in the House of Commons. Uh, we have one in Canada here as well. Uh, there's a mace that sits there on the table in uh, in between the parties. And it's supposed to uh, sort of represent the power and the authority of the um, the crown. And it's not actually, you're not actually allowed to sit parliament without the mace present. Uh, so for instance, one of the shenanigans that the, that an MP got up to uh, while we were there, uh, they didn't want some kind of debate about a Brexit bill uh, to take place. So somebody actually picked up the mace and walked out with it uh, because they couldn't legally hold debate in House of Commons without the mace being present. And so they uh, they actually walked off with the current mace and and took it out of the House of Commons. Earlier versions of the maces from other uh, monarchs are on display as part of the Crown Jewels collection, and they could technically come to the you know come to the tower, get another mace from the collection, and actually bring it to the House of Commons and use it as part of the parliament sitting if uh the current one went missing permanently so it is a it is an interesting collection there's a, an interesting history to the pieces that are in there i find maces to be quite ominous objects and i suppose it's part of their purpose as well but for anyone who might not be familiar how would you describe the way a mace actually looks and, and how it's formed and perhaps how one or two of the ones in the, the royal collection looked well the a mace in the original maces uh, that were being used as military equipment, as weapons in the Middle Ages were brutal things. They were basically a stick that was maybe 
three feet long, about a meter long, and they had a large steel head on them, and they were basically used to club people to death with. Uh, so they were particularly effective at uh, crushing joints of steel armor so that they could no longer articulate. The mace that's being used in this sense is a far more ornate thing. Uh, of course, it's become sort of bigger and gaudier uh, through pomp and circumstance. So these maces are typically, let's say, a meter and a half long, and they're quite large. So they've got large ornate heads on them. Um, they've got, you know, they're they're covered in gold leaf. In um, in the case of the actual shaft itself, uh, they're usually an oak shaft that's been uh, covered in gold leaf. And then the uh, the head itself is usually quite ornate, and it has you know gold work on it and stones and things like that. Uh, but even being a ceremonial object the way that it is, it certainly has some presence. Certainly, if somebody hit you with one of these, it, you would not be having a good day. It, it would be, it would not be a good thing for you. And you mentioned a little earlier in the show that you also got to tour the workshop of Grant McDonald. What was that like? Well, that was absolutely remarkable. Uh, it was, uh, it was a bit interesting because they're in the middle of packing up. They're, uh, they're actually moving down the street to uh, new facilities uh, while we were there, but um, we were able to get a chance to sort of go through it and see a few people working, see some of the projects that they're currently working on, as well as some of the projects they've, they've worked on in the past. And uh, this is absolutely remarkable work. Uh, certainly some of the highest end work I've ever seen uh, in terms of not only skill level, but also scale. Uh, they're working on a scale that's just completely foreign to me. Uh, one of the pieces that they um, they were showing was a sword. This was a saber that had been ordered, uh, about 1.2 meters long, Damascus steel blade, uh, about 1.3 kilograms of gold between the scabbard and the hilt, something like 1,300 diamonds and rubies in it. Just an absolutely remarkable piece. You know, for most people, this would have been you know, for if somebody like me had that project, it's sort of a, you know, career defining piece, right? Making, making something like this. The order that they had gotten from this customer was for 50 of these. What on earth are they doing with 50 of these? <laughs> I don't know. That is unreal. It's, you know, that's the thing that that's the sort of scale that these guys are working at. Uh, wow. There was a, uh, a life-sized palm tree that they made out of silver and it ended up having 250 kilograms of silver in it. So. You know, basically, Grant has made a career out of having people come to him with fantastic ideas of things that they want and saying, yes, I can make that for you. And, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that I would look at some of these projects and go, okay, yeah, sure, you want a set of 14 you know, pieces of cutlery for your dinner set. Well, that's great. I can design that and I can make the 14 pieces, you know, with all the different knives and forks and spoons and everything like that. And, you know, that's not a problem. And then the client says, okay, but I need 450 sets. And that's the sort of scale that these guys are working at. It's, it's remarkable because not only are they working at a massive scale in terms of the volume of things that they're making, but this scale in terms of the quality of work that they're doing is mm. just unbelievable. Remarkable, remarkable work that they're that they're doing at a very, very high level. Yeah, that palm tree's probably got more silver in it than you'll use in a, a lifetime of work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
uh, any almost any one of the pieces that they are that they're working on they're containing more material than i'm likely to use in in my entire career you know they're doing that kind of work for a single a single job so it, it is it is pretty remarkable and, and one of the nice things when i you know looking at this at the way that they work obviously grant's been doing this for 50 years he's been using traditional skills for years and uh, that's how the firm grew up was was doing a lot of traditional work but they've also embraced using modern rapid prototyping techniques so they're doing a lot of work with 3d printers mm. uh, one of the iconic things that they've done recently was a silver leopard for for an exhibit they put on last year at the goldsmiths company which was for the 50th anniversary of grant mcdonald and it's this beautiful leopard that's that's sort of lying there and um i i don't i don't know remember the scale of it i mean it's it's quite large like it's you know it's probably half a meter long and the way that they made it was by 3d printing it in parts so they printed it in something like nine different parts on a form labs printer on a form labs seriously wow they printed it on a form labs printer in the castable resin they cast it and then they used a TIG welder to weld it all together. And then they hand finished it and chased it. So all of the details that are on it um, were all hand chased and uh, and all hand finished. But it was very eye-opening seeing the way that they're melding modern 3D printing technology with traditional lost wax casting and then using modern welding techniques, which you would you know, you would really not think of using for precious metal work. Like it's the kind of work that you're using when you're, you know, you're welding up structural members of a skyscraper and they're using those techniques those welding techniques for uh, assembling precious metal objects and getting unbelievable results out of it. Uh, there was a piece that they, that he was showing me, I, I got to handle. It was part of a light sconce that they're making for the goldsmiths hall and there it's a very angular piece because they're uh, there's sort of angular channels where they're hiding led lighting behind the angle and these pieces are meeting up in different different um different ways to create very sharp intersections that are relatively complex and would be very challenging to do in in any other way so they're 3d printing the parts assembling them by welding them together and then cleaning them up afterwards and they're able to get unbelievably sharp detail in these structural elements and these these architectural elements and uh just unbelievable work uh, and then they're also using it for things like animals right so they were they were working on some pieces at the time that uh the pieces that were coming off the 3d printer were they were for a horse model that uh, they were in the middle of working on. And uh, again, just remarkable work. You're seeing this horse. I think it's being printed in 14 or 15 parts, and then it's going to get welded together. And then they're going to be able to sit down and use traditional techniques to then texture it and put the details in. Hmm. That's in incredibly validating for, for form labs. I, I would not have expected that they were, were using those machines. I mean, Maxim Lebowski, who, basically grew form labs out of uh, his bedroom uh like a little less than a decade or just over a decade now like he must be be quite chopped to know that that, that his tool is being used uh on these sorts of pieces and i'm sure 
I don't even know if he knows. And I mean, he may, but as far as he knows, he's, they're probably just a normal customer. Like he's just, oh yeah, okay, Grant McDonald, Silversmith, you know, they've ordered a printer. Um, it, it's funny because when we were talking about the new Form 3 printer that's come out and they've got the big version of it. And I, I think I was joking about the fact that I could print enough pens in one print job that would keep me busy basically for the rest of my career uh, in terms of finishing. And that's the sort of printer that, these guys will look at and go, okay, great. That's just, you know, improved our, our cycle time. We can do six pieces instead of nine. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's unbelievable. The, the scale these guys are working at and, and they could sit there and say, all right, yeah, we can, you know, there's still limits on the size of any one of these pieces when it goes into the casting machine, because the casting machines have, have size limitations as well, but they could print more and more of these parts all at once. And that's exactly the kind of customer that um, that Formlabs was thinking about when, in terms of scale, when it comes to printing. So, yeah, it's um, it really opened my eyes to how you can use 3D printing in jewelry work. I'm using it in a very delicate, very fine way, printing small parts and then and then casting them as individual things. Uh, whereas they're going the completely opposite direction. They are going for large scale. And then assembling them afterwards. And it's just gorgeous, gorgeous work. So it was certainly one of the most eye-opening things that I saw on this entire trip. It was it was remarkable. So did you get to see any casts in process? Because that must be remarkable too. Just thinking about how big those those pieces are <laughs> and, and watching something spin around. Yeah, they're not spinning. They're they're using a vacuum caster. In fact, they use new tech casting machines just like I do. Uh, they're using the big brother of the casting machine that I happen to use. Uh, so they're able to use larger flasks than I can. I think they've got the six-inch diameter flasks, I think, that are about, I want to say that they're about 16 inches long. They're, they're massive flasks. Um, so I, I don't even want to think about how much silver and gold they're able to cast in a single shot because I know I can do up to a kilogram of silver in mine at one time. Uh, so I, I don't even... I have no idea what uh, what the max volume is that they're able to work in, uh, but they are using vacuum casting machines for doing that kind of work, and they're getting great results out of it. I did I did get to handle a piece. Uh, it was the head. I think it was a leopard head. It had come out of the casting machine, and they basically cut the sprues off, and that was it. It's it's amazing the the quality of work that they're able to get out of it. Uh, thinking of the two hundred and fifty kilogram palm tree. <laughs> I can't help but but think of uh, a sultan somewhere in the UAE parking his his solid silver Audi or BMW <laughs> or Mercedes under it, and it kind of has me wondering whether Grant McDonald is the one responsible for some of these monstrosities of, of a vehicle. To my knowledge, Grant's never done cars at <laughs> like functional cars. He has done okay, so I say not functional cars. Uh, there was a piece that he had there, and it was a solid silver Aston Martin. Uh, it was, I guess, it was. Uh, I want to say that this Aston it was a DB5. It was maybe four or five inches long, and it was milled directly in a solid block of silver. Hmm. And it was it looked remarkable. Now, of course, you're not going to be driving that, but uh, it was a uh, it was a very nice car that was uh, milled out of a solid block of silver. I guess you kind of have to own several oil fields to even be able to afford to, to drive a car made of solid silver. Given the amount of, you'd be paying for gas. Obviously, the people that are that are buying these things, um, you know, money is really no object for them. It, you know, it's certainly a, a very select clientele 
a very specific type of work as well that you're doing. Obviously, it's not to everybody's taste, and that's fine. You know, it's the, the client is getting what they're looking for, and they're happy with it. So it, it's the kind of place that would have been interesting to work at for a couple of years early on in my career. I, I don't think I could work at, at somewhere like that now. I don't think I would be able to keep my head down doing the same thing over and over again like that. Uh, I, I've got too many ideas of my own and too many places that I want to go. Uh, and frankly, I don't know that I even have the bench skills to be able to work there. Uh, I did joke with Grant at one point. I said, uh, so where do I apply and when do I start? But I don't even know that I could I could hack it there. Um, the guys that are working there are all incredibly gifted and uh, and very, very skilled workers. So, you know, hats off to them. They they were showing there were a couple of them in the shop that uh, that day, and uh, they were more than happy to show off what they were working on and and talk to us about it. I, I sort of got the impression that they've they're used to having people come through and do tours of the studio, but it was nice for them to talk to somebody who actually had technical know how and could ask interesting questions of them. So that was nice to be able to uh, to be able to chat with some of the guys and 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 have a good conversation with them about what they were working on. And did you get a sense at any point uh, of what it would be like to to be a young apprentice in McDonald's studio? Well, the the one apprentice that was there was actually in the process of working on his um, masterwork project to uh, to exit his apprenticeship, and it was a desk clock. It had uh, malachite base on it, and it had um, rock crystal face on the um, the, the clock. Uh, so he was in the process of actually working on part of that. Uh, so I got to chat with him for a couple of minutes and and talk a little bit uh, about what he was working on. So. I get the impression that it's certainly a, a place for people, you know, if you can get in there in your early on in your career, it would be a great leg up in terms of getting yourself the skills that you need to be able to do incredibly high end work. I don't know how many people finish their career there, like they, you know, sort of start to finish, but uh, certainly it would be an interesting place to work for for a few years. Well, Grant McDonald's is working on a, a much larger scale than you yourself work at. Did you manage to, to pick up any any little insights while you were there touring that you're going to bring back and, and start applying in your own work and in your own shop? I'm not sure that the things that they're doing are going to be directly relatable to the things that I'm doing right now. Uh, so right now, I, I mean, things like the, uh, the pen work and the watch work that I'm currently making. Having said that, Looking at some of the 3D printed pieces that they're making for cutlery, for instance, I can definitely see how to apply some of those ideas to my own work as uh, as a pen maker. So I have some ideas for how do I translate that into, you know, that kind of work into pens that I could make in the future. Uh, I don't see a lot of applications for it in watchmaking, but that's fine. Uh, you know, there's there's certainly other things that I could do. And certainly some of the other pieces that they made have me thinking about pieces that I could make uh, that, you know, sort of ideas that have been bouncing around in the back of my brain for years, but I've never really given serious thought to partially because I didn't really know how I might accomplish them. But certainly some things around uh, picture frames or clocks that I want to make. And I've now got ideas for different design elements that I could use that I never would have thought of using before. So I think that there are going to be some things that come out of it, probably not right away, but, you know, sort of in the next five or 10 years, there are going to be pieces that I make that the origins of those designs 
are from that tour that I've done of Grant's studio. So from that point of view, it was incredibly worthwhile for me. I, I, I've learned so much in terms of what, what you can do with these metals on a, on a larger scale and also how to use 3d printing in different ways that I just hadn't thought about using them for. So uh, definitely there will be some, uh, some techniques and some design elements that I start using in the future that I probably wouldn't have used before. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, I, but I have to wrap my brain around what are those designs going to look like? How are they going to be used? And not just trying to use a technology for the sake of using that technology. You know, that, that I find is a, a big problem with the way that people design things. They say, oh, here's this cool new thing that I know. I'm going to put that into every design that I put out now. And I am very conscious of not doing that. You don't want to throw sort of every new thing that you've learned into a new design piece because it, it just doesn't work. So I have to find appropriate places to use it. But I, I think I've got some ideas for uh, where I want to start experimenting and where I want to sort of delve into that uh, that's based on some pieces that I saw there. Now, most of the pieces you've mentioned sound very ornate and elaborate and largely sculptural or aesthetic. The silverware or goldware, more specifically, are among the more functional items that, that you've mentioned. Were they as ornate or were they more true to form and, and tool-like in the way that they were being produced? Well, they were they were very functional in terms of how you could use them. Like I, I was able to pick up some several of the pieces and actually handle them. And so I was able to handle a knife and fork that would be used as part of a dinner set. And I could see how comfortable they would be to use as a knife and fork in a dinner set. Um, so they're certainly functional from the point of view of of being items that you could use and they serve the purpose that they that they're designed for. So they're not just so ornate that you could never use them uh, for the purpose that they're designed for. Uh, they have, those particular pieces had um, uh, sort of open work in the handles, which was 3D printed and then cast. And it presented a, a way of making these pieces that make them lighter than they would be if made through the traditional methods. And also more interesting because I find that most traditionally made silverware, it's not particularly interesting. It's basically stamped parts that are soldered together and then, um, you know, and then attached to the blades. And it's, there's only so much you can do with that without getting into the gaudy when, when it comes to ornamenting them afterwards. So the, the pieces that they were making were certainly interesting they were very modern looking and um modern looking but not um not modern in a bizarre way like it's you know you wouldn't necessarily find them on display at moma but that's probably a good thing because something you know cutlery that you found on display at moma probably wouldn't be very functional and and these were these these were certainly things that you could uh, that you could use and i would be you know if i could afford a set of these i'd be happy to put them out on you know, on my dinner table and use them on a regular basis. Do you have any idea what, what a single place setting would cost from, from Gravity <laughs> I have Phone? No idea. I have no idea. You can't actually buy stuff from them. They certainly do sell to the public. Uh, and in fact, uh, they had, they had a, uh, a showroom set up in Harrods, I think for a while. 
uh, certainly one of the large department stores. I can't, I'm pretty sure it was Harrods. Uh, they had a setup there for years and you could go in and you could buy things um, straight from Grant McDonald from the, you know, through the, the storefront. Uh, but I think now if you go onto the website, I, I believe they do actually have a shop uh, where they do sell sort of regular things. Uh, so for instance, cufflinks are one of the things that they sell regularly. And, uh, you know, you can buy that kind of thing from, from them directly. Uh, I don't know if they have a, uh, a set of cutlery up there that you could buy. I'll we'll have to check that out and, uh, and see if you can or not, but uh, it, it would be a different set than what, uh, than what I saw, but. Well, it would have to match the, the 50 swords that I place around <laughs> the dining room. Yeah. Well, you've got to have your uh you've got to dress your your serving staff in something right and having those sta- those swords on your your serving staff is certainly the kind of thing that you need so you mentioned that mcdonald's is using the the form labs printers are they using any other types of additive manufacturing there in their their studio they do have envision tech printers there as well and they're printing they're doing another uh 3d printed object that uh is a castable resin so those pieces are then being cast so their cufflinks for instance and i believe the handles for their cutlery those are being printed on the envision tech printer uh, it has a significantly smaller work volume and work envelope that it can print in but it also has much higher resolution it can print very very sharp detail and very sharp uh, edges on it so those pieces are are printed on the envision tech and then cast Whereas the larger pieces where they're less concerned about the sharp detail uh, because it's something that's going to be welded together and then the detail is going to be added by hand afterwards. Those are being done on the form labs printers. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the miniature Aston Martin there. Did you happen to see any any other Aston <laughs> Martins of note while you were mm. in London? Yes, I got to see a, a rather a rather destroyed Aston Martin. One of the, uh, actually later that evening, one of the the same day that I got to see Grant McDonald's studio, uh, Tamara and I went to the Secret Cinema, and the Secret Cinema that was uh, that's playing right now is uh, James Bond Casino Royale. Uh, so, for those who aren't familiar with what Secret Cinema is, it's a company that does these immersive movie watching experiences. Uh, so, they pick a particular movie. And they build a whole theme, basically a theme park around the movie. You dress up in a theme that's appropriate for the movie. It's sort of like a murder mystery dinner theater kind of thing, uh, except that in this case, it's James Bond. And they have a spy thing going on that you can try and solve this puzzle as you're, you know, as you're sort of sitting there and going through different parts of the the set that they've created. And, you know, they've got dinner and food and um, drinks and things like that. You know, we, we were there for an hour and a half. And all of a sudden they're saying, oh, it's time to go and watch the movie. And we're like, what do you mean to watch the movie? We've only been here 10 minutes. And then you realize, oh, we've been here an hour and a half. And it's, it's, an impressive thing that they've done in terms of building out this experience for you to sort of live in this world of, in this case of James Bond and, and see, you know, what they've done. And then once you've, you know, sort of had a chance to go through and do that bit, they then usher you into the theater where you get to watch the movie. And interestingly, they also have actors who are, who are acting out parts of the, the movie while it's on screen. So there's scenes from the movie that are, that are being acted out by by live actors on stage. And so you'll see things like, for instance, in, in Casino Royale, there's 
you know, the various scenes around the poker table and they have actual actors on the stage acting out parts of the scene. And it, it, it does add an interesting element to the movie itself and the movie watching experience itself. I think it would be a little bit distracting if you had never seen the movie before. And if you didn't know anything about the movie, you know, you were, you were watching it. I think that having all these things going on would be a little bit distracting. Like there was a chase scene at one point. And so you see these two actors like chasing each other around this, around the, uh, the stage. Uh, but for somebody like myself watching a movie that I've seen a dozen times already, I know very well, it, it really did bring an interesting experience to watching the movie itself. And, uh, and seeing it. Now you say you, you dressed up like the film as well. And we did dress up for it. Of course, one of the problems is that they don't let you take photos in there. So there's no, I don't have any photos from the evening when we were actually inside the experience. And I get why they want to do that. Uh, they don't want people to ruin it for everyone else. And, you know, they don't want people sort of standing around with their iPhones out and, and taking photos of everything. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, but at the end of the evening, when they've let you out and they've given you your phone back, uh, they had actual cars from the movie on display uh, that you could take photos of. Uh, so the f one of the um, one of the Aston Martins from Casino Royale was out front, and it happened to be the one that they flipped towards the end of the movie and destroyed. And so they've got this destroyed Aston Martin sitting there in a glass box. It's impressive. I, I didn't realize that anybody had kept this car, or that. I don't know how they got a hold of it and uh, and were able to borrow it for the length of this this run that they're doing, uh, but yeah, that was actually out front, and we were able to see the uh, the Aston that they uh, destroyed in that set. So, what was the experience like beforehand? That you said time seemed to pass very quickly. I don't want to give a lot away about what what they were doing, just in case there are people who are who are going to go to it. But and so it's in a large warehouse, and they had set it up as as an international airport, and so as you move through sort of quote unquote gates of the airport, you move into different countries that are part of the movie itself. So, you know, one of them was in Italy, another one was in uh, Montenegro. And so they have different things that go on in these different locations and they're all themed based on the places that you're, you know, that you're going. The first time I heard about it was when uh, CGP Grey and Brady Heron, who record Hello Internet together, they went to the show that they did last summer and that was based on Blade Runner. And so they had created a, you know, sort of an LA 2019 from the vision of Blade Runner, you know, set. Everybody was dressed up as, you know, you would see or as you would imagine somebody from Blade Runner 2019 dressing up. And they had various things like they had bars and stuff like that that you could get into and stuff. Um, and so the, they do, you know, very, very immersive experiences. There was one movie, and I don't remember which one it was. Uh, and apparently it was, I think it was a, a thriller of some sort. I think there was a scene in like a psych ward or something like that where everybody's on gurneys. And apparently you watch the movie lying on a gurney. Like that was they had set up all these gurneys in the in the theater, and so you're you're lying on your back watching the, the movie on the on the ceiling. Um, so they they do crazy things that you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, for a, a typical movie experience. But it, it's um it's an interesting idea. I think that if you know it's it's not an inexpensive night out, unfortunately. But I think if you were if you found a movie that they were doing that you really enjoyed, I would recommend going to it. It, it was definitely worthwhile. As far as Bond movies go, I was rather 
disappointed in, in Q Branch in Casino Royale. So that would not be my Bond film of choice for for Secret Cinema. Yeah, the, unfortunately, the 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 Q division is pretty pretty lame in in uh, there. Although they did have a little uh, Q division uh, area set up, and they did have an Aston in place there, so that was that was kind of nice. But uh, you're right; it, it it wouldn't necessarily have been my first choice, but it definitely works well from the Casino Royale kind of um, standpoint. So that was uh, that was worthwhile from that point of view. So, what would be your your ultimate Bond secret cinema? Well, you have to think about something, you know, your classic, like something like Moonraker, where you're, you know, you could actually be on the space station or in, you know, they have shuttles or something, you know, stuff like that, being able to launch you know, or be able to, to wander around that. And then, of course, for myself and, and sort of my origin story as a jeweler, I'd have to say Octopussy. And that could be interesting as well, because then they could do things like set up a a circus and things like that. So there'd be some interesting things you could do with that too. I think any of the bond films, you'd be able to do interesting stuff for secret cinema. I think Mm -hmm. all of them would work quite well for it. Uh, I know the one they're doing this fall is based on stranger things. Uh, Season three of stranger things just came out. Uh, I don't know how they're going to do that. I'm, I'm kind of curious because it's easy with a movie because it's, you know, two hour long movie. You can't show the entire season of stranger things in an evening. So I don't know what they're going to do for that. Maybe it's just going to be one or two episodes of it that they show, but that'll be interesting to hear about to see what they've done with it. How large is the audience? I'm just trying to wrap my head around, you know, the, a version of this where the entire audience is stretched out on gurneys trying to, to watch something projected onto the ceiling. It can't be a very large group. Yeah. I don't know how many people would have been for that, but for this one, I would say there's about a thousand people. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, it's, it's larger than you realize. It was uh, it was quite remarkable. So they had a you know stadium style the you know seating set up, and yeah, I'd say there was there was probably close to a thousand people there. That's not what I would have expected. That's impressive. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.